Welcome to the Sunday School class for Joelton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills. I'm glad we could have this time together today. Today, I'm taking a little bit of a break from the Ten Commandments. As you know, it's the Christmas season. And so I've titled today's lesson, The Christmas Story, An Unexpected Messiah. And we'll be looking at the Christmas story as told to us from Luke chapter 2 and Matthew chapters 1 and 2. We're going to use a couple of key verses. Matthew 1.23, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. John 1.14, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then finally, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The story of Christmas is the story of the Incarnation. It's the story of Emmanuel, God with us, God Himself becoming man. We see God's plan of salvation set into action. A Messiah comes, Jesus Christ, who saves us from our sins so that we can be restored to fellowship with God. When we look at the Christmas story, sometimes it becomes so familiar to us that we really don't stop to think about what it's saying. But sometimes the Christmas story is one that we don't really expect. It's a story that's normal, that's routine in many ways, but then it has its moments of just absolute splendor. Those who encounter the Christ child, they encounter a Messiah that defies their expectations, a Messiah that doesn't meet into their preconceptions, but a Messiah who provides a salvation far beyond what they had imagined. In the same way, a lot of times we have our own preconceived ideas of, of what the Incarnation is about, of what type of salvation that the Messiah provides for us. And our view of salvation often doesn't uh, go far enough. You know, we don't find the salvation that we expect, but when we look at what God actually provides, we find a life in Christ that's far richer, far deeper than what we could imagine. Today's story, we begin with Mary and Joseph, the parents of the Messiah. Now, they have their conception of the Messiah. Uh, Mary, remember, receives the word from the angel Gabriel that she will have a child even though she is a virgin. This child will be uh, fathered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon her. And so she is told that she is going to be the mother of the Messiah, the mother of the Christ. And Joseph also is told this, that Mary is bearing the, the Son of God himself. Now, Mary is told by an angel, Gabriel, and Joseph is told in a dream. But we can see that the story itself begins with an incredible event, uh, something that is entirely supernatural, this announcement of, of a virgin birth. But after that, the rest of the pregnancy, the birth that follows, all of this is the normal routine. 
Mary undergoes a normal pregnancy, a normal birth. Joseph takes Mary as his wife. He has to provide for her. In the eyes of the world, he is the father. And then they end up making this trip to Bethlehem. They endure all of the hardships that traveling involved in that day. The discomfort, the danger, the physical toil, all of this. And it's made more difficult by the fact that Mary is pregnant. So we see them living out their normal lives, the normal, humdrum, everyday life. So Mary is carrying the Messiah. She's carrying the Son of God. But yet, when the birth occurs, it occurs in the most humble of circumstances. You know, there's nothing king-like, there's nothing splendid or glorious uh, about this birth. They are in a, a strange city. Joseph has relatives there, evidently. He's from Bethlehem, or his family is. We don't know, though, how distant these relatives of this family may be. Uh, evidently, they don't have uh, roots in Bethlehem. There would not be the support system that they were used to in Nazareth. But it's in Bethlehem where Mary gives birth. Luke 2, 7, And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. So they find themselves without a home. Now, our traditional idea of Christmas is Mary and Joseph arrive in Bethlehem. They're looking for a place in the local inn, the local hotel, but they cannot find a room, and therefore they find themselves in a stable. Now, the idea of the stable comes from this detail we are given that Jesus was laid in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. But when you look at Matthew, Matthew specifically says that they were in a house when the Magi arrived. And the word that we see used in Luke that some versions translate as in, there was no room for them in the inn. really that word should probably be translated as guest room. Later in Luke, in Luke 22:11, Jesus is preparing to eat the Last Supper with his disciples, and he sends Peter and John ahead, and they are told to find a specific man and ask, "Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples?" And this word for guest room is the same word that's used earlier for inn. And Mark actually translates the word in the same way as a guest room. So, we know that also that public inns at this time were not a place that decent people would go to. They had a bad reputation. Uh, they were used mainly for criminals, for prostitutes. So, if, if you were from a, a decent law-abiding religious family, most often when you visited somewhere, you would stay with friends, you would stay with family, you would avoid these public ends. So, uh, we know that also that it wasn't unusual to find animals living in close contact with humans. Uh, houses would often have inner courtyards where animals may be sheltered, and many homes were made essentially of two large rooms. There was one large room for the people to live in, 
and another room that was attached that would be used to shelter animals. So really, instead of the idea of Mary and Joseph arriving in Bethlehem, looking for a room in the local inn and being turned away, taking refuge in a barn or stable, uh, the idea probably is they were staying with family or friends, but these were ones who had no guest room available. There was no room in the main living area of the house. And so Mary and Joseph find themselves staying in some kind of attachment to the main house where there may also have been animals kept. And so this is where the, the feeding trough comes from. But what we can clearly see is these are poor people. These are not wealthy. They're not well-to-do. They're making do with what is available. They are living with whatever material resources they have. It's not the most comfortable of situations. So a feeding trough would not be the normal accommodations for a newborn, but you can see that it was a make-do solution to this problem. They were making a bed of straw or hay for the newborn from whatever was available, whatever was at hand. We don't really know what expectations that Mary and Joseph had uh, for the birth of this child. We don't know what went through their minds when they're told, you are going to be the parents of the Messiah. This Messiah that Israel has been looking forward to for hundreds of years is finally going to arrive and it's going to be part of your family. We don't know. That surely would have to set up some kind of expectations on their part. They would have expected something, you know, from a child to be the Messiah whose conception was announced by an angel. And so really you have to think this is probably not the way that they imagined things would work out when they begin thinking about the arrival of this baby. Then we move to the part of the shepherds. The shepherds were the witnesses to the birth. Now, they had begun their night as part of their normal routine. You can think of it as starting to work on a Monday morning. You're going to the regular daily grind, whatever that happens to be. Now, being a shepherd was probably not an easy life. It's a life that would have long periods of boredom, but then it might be punctuated by moments of of sheer terror when when an attack occurred when you had to defend the flock in some way. You know, it was an outdoor life. Uh, You were out in the elements, in the weather. Uh, It wasn't one that that paid a lot of money. It would be a life where it was hard to keep clean. And we know uh, by what is written that uh, many at that time and later would hold shepherds in contempt. They were viewed as kind of the lower classes of society. And a lot of it had to do with the nature of their work. It was rough, dirty, outdoor work. It would be almost impossible for them to follow the the laws of purity, which required so many ceremonial washings. Uh, It was just something that they couldn't do as part of their normal life. In fact, sometimes shepherds were classed with tax collectors, and we know the low opinion that many held of tax collectors. In later times, uh, shepherds were forbidden from giving testimony in court, from holding judicial office. And in fact, later rabbis would sometimes even forbid buying something from a shepherd. 
because the assumption was shepherds were so dishonest, if you bought something from them, you were probably buying stolen goods. And so we can see that the shepherds were not a likely group to be chosen to be witnesses to the birth of the Messiah. They weren't those that you would expect to be there. And you have to wonder at Joseph and Mary's reaction when these are the witnesses that show up after the birth of the baby. But that night, this normal routine was interrupted. Scripture tells us the angel of the Lord shone around them, or the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. You know, this is the Shekinah glory. It's a visible manifestation of God on earth. And so, can you picture this? You know, it's night, it's dark, and a lot of times, you know, we think of it as quiet and peaceful. We think of the, the Christmas song, uh, Little Ch- uh, uh, About to Bethlehem, and how quiet it was that night. But in a lot of places, the darkness was not something that was welcome. It was something to be feared. You didn't want to be in the dark because you didn't know what else was out there in the darkness. So they're in the dark. It may have been, you know, a time of nervousness. We don't know. But then all of a sudden, you know, a brilliant light lights up the sky. And they behold this this angel. And it's hard for us to understand what that really would look like. We don't really have any way of picturing it. But we can see from the response of the shepherds, the Bible tells us they were terrified. The very first thing the angel says to them is, don't be afraid. And so whatever this would have been, it would have been something that that was pretty terrifying to see. And the the angel provides a message to them. A Savior has been born, the Messiah, Christ, the Lord. And you have to wonder how the shepherds reacted to this news. The Messiah was here. Finally, at last, God was stepping in to set things right. You know, this was the God of the covenant, the God of the Jewish people, the God who had used the plagues to bring them out of slavery in Egypt, the God who had split the Red Sea to allow them across, the God who had brought down the walls of Jericho to let them conquer this city. You know, they had been waiting for just this moment for the Messiah to arrive, Finally, they would get back their rightful place in the world. Uh, They would have a Savior to free them from the oppression of the Romans. But then the angel says, this will be a sign. And so you have to think, okay, what are they thinking when they hear you're going to receive a sign? Uh, They have to be wondering, you know, what, what would be the sign of the Messiah? You can look back at the words of Joel as he described the day of the Lord. When he talks about the coming day of the Lord, he says, it's like dawn spreading across the mountains. A large and mighty army comes. And then it says, I will show wonders on the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. And so when they hear these words, you're going to receive a sign of the Messiah. You have to wonder what they were thinking about, what they were expecting. The sign they are given, though, is something totally different. They are told, you're going to receive the sign 
of a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. There's no turning of the moon to blood. There's no billows of smoke. There's a baby. You know, we think, well, you know, it doesn't really fit our expectations. What kind of, of sign is this from the Messiah? Then, however, the entire sky explodes. Not one angel, but the Bible tells us a great company of the heavenly host. So you can think if one angel had been terrifying, now the entire sky lit up, you know, as far as you can see, thousands of angels, all of them praising God and singing glory, glory to God. The angels then leave. The sky is back to its darkness. It's silent once again. And the shepherds talk among themselves. You can imagine what they're saying as they discuss, you know, what they just saw. Uh, how hard it is to believe what they just saw. So they decide, we've got to find this baby. And so they go into Bethlehem. They look. They do find Joseph and Mary and the baby. And we're not told a lot about their experience there at the, at the manger itself. But it doesn't disappoint whatever it was like. We're not given any specific details, but it talks about afterwards the shepherds tell everyone they find, everyone they meet. And it says they go out glorifying and praising God for what they have seen. So there must have been something uh, that was uh, miraculous here, something about their visit with this infant. But you do notice the shepherds return to their sheep. They go back, back to their normal jobs, back to their normal activities. This is news which interrupts their night, but it doesn't interrupt the rest of their lives. They go back to doing what they would normally do. Then we are told about another set of visitors. These are the Magi, the wise men. These are Gentiles who show up in Bethlehem. So sometime after the birth, and we don't know exactly how long, most likely it was probably a couple of months, the family receives a second set of visitors. And these visitors are totally different from the shepherds. The shepherds are Jewish. The Magi are from the east. We're not given a, a specific land or nation, but it's definite, definite that they are not Jewish. Uh, the shepherds are from the lowest classes of society. You know, poor, uneducated, looked down upon, the Magi would be totally different. They would be educated men of science. Uh, they must have been fairly wealthy. They were able to undertake this trip and provide the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So we see from the visits of the shepherd and then the visits of the wise men, we see the full range of human society that's found here, from the poor uh, to the highest levels of society from the Jewish to the Gentile levels of society. Now, the Magi were astronomers. They studied the skies. That was their job. You know, they knew what to expect from the heavens. By this time, quite a bit of study had been done. We knew how to predict when uh, specific stars would appear, when certain planets would appear. We knew what to expect from them as they traveled across the sky. So the Magi's had spent their lives studying the skies. 
and they were also astrologists. Now, we look at astrology today, and we usually think of, well, you know, it's kind of those nutcases that look at astrology. But in that time, astrology would have been part of astronomy. It would have been considered just as serious. So they were looking to the stars to try to understand human events. And they, they, the event that leads them to the Messiah, they look at the heavens and they find a sign. They find evidence of a star indicating uh, that the Jewish king had been born. And so they traveled to Jerusalem looking for the one who had been born king of the Jews. They had seen his star in the east. Now, notice that it wasn't what they saw in the heavens that led them to Jerusalem. Whatever was in the heavens had revealed to them that this would be the king of the Jews. And so they came to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was the capital of, of the Jewish uh, people. It was there that they expected to find the king. And they began asking around once they were in the, the, the uh, city of Jerusalem. And so Herod finds out, Herod calls the religious leaders together, and they inform the Magi that any king should be born in Bethlehem. And so then they travel to Bethlehem. But again, you know, they've been told where to go. And Bethlehem wasn't a large city. And so once they had arrived in Bethlehem, it would have been uh, fairly easy to, to locate the family of, of Mary, Joseph, and this baby. So, a lot of times we have in our minds the picture of this huge giant star that's, that's right above Bethlehem. But it's interesting that when the Magi go to Jerusalem, none of the people of Jerusalem appear to have noticed anything unusual in the night sky. So, you know, if, if it was one giant star, surely it would have been noticed. Surely people would have been commenting about it. Now, the Magi were men who had spent their lives studying the heavens. They knew what to expect. And somehow, they saw something different. They saw something in the heavens that convinced them a new king had been born to the Jewish nation. And most likely, it was something subtle, something that, as educated astronomers, they would notice. Ordinary people probably would not. But... What we see here is that the Magi learn of the Messiah not through a supernatural revelation. They're not visited by angels. They're not visited even by a dream. They are, are learning of the Messiah through their work, through their day-to-day -day jobs as they study the heavens. And so there's also no indication that they necessarily viewed these events as religious in nature. Evidently, they thought they were coming to worship a, a new Jewish king. They were coming to pay him homage. Now, Matthew 2.11 says that they worshipped the Christ child. But this word does not necessarily have to mean worship in the sense of, of worshiping a god. It could also be used in the sense of just paying reverence to an earthly ruler, an earthly king. And so... For the Magi, this may have been really a totally secular event. They arrive, they ask about a new king. They're not asking necessarily about a Messiah figure. 
They didn't go to the religious leaders when they went to Jerusalem. You know, Herod was the one who involved the religious leaders. So in the Magi, we find these witnesses that really defy our expectations. We find Gentiles not necessarily looking for a spiritual Messiah, looking for an earthly king, learning about this king through the the secular science of astronomy. But what they find is something far more than an earthly king. They find the Messiah. They find the Son of God himself. And so they start out with one thing in mind, and they end up being present at the birth of, of a king that's far greater than just an ordinary king of the Jews. So as we read through the Christmas story, the birth of the Messiah brings us face to face with a Messiah that sometimes we don't really expect. And it's important for us to learn this lesson. God does not necessarily provide us with the salvation that we want, that uh, is our idea of what we need. Instead, God provides us with something that is much, much greater. The Christmas story tells us of the incarnation, God becoming man. As we read earlier, Matthew 1.23, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then John 1.14, The Word became flesh, and made his dwelling among us. And so we can see from this, the incarnation is something that has never taken place before. God himself has become man. God has joined himself to man. Now, the baby is circumcised on the eighth day and given the name Jesus. Now, for us, Jesus is a very special name. We hold it in high regard and high esteem. But at that time, Jesus was among the most common Jewish names for males. Uh, The name Jesus means Jehovah or Yahweh saves. This uh, name of Jehovah, this was God's personal name, the name that he gave to Moses when he introduced himself to the children of Israel. Joseph is told, give him this name, Yahweh saves, because This Jesus will save his people from their sins. Now, when we think about sin, we usually think of sins as those actions or behaviors that we do that are against God's law, the specific rules or commands that we've broken. So we think of times when we've lied or we've cheated or we've stolen or whatever it might be. And so we think of salvation in terms of being forgiven for these sins, having our record wiped clean. We uh, want to, to be excused from our sins so that we're not punished, so that we go to heaven instead of hell. But sin is far more than this. It's far more than the acts that we do. You know, Jesus told us this. When he told us that, for example, the sin of adultery, it actually begins with the heart. The adultery doesn't occur when the physical act occurs. The the adultery begins long earlier. Uh, It begins with that lustful heart. So the salvation that Jesus, that Yahweh saves, that's provided to us, 
This is more than just about our actions. Jesus came to deliver us from sin itself, to deliver us from that innate, that inborn selfishness, that self-centered bent to our nature, you know, what we may call the carnal nature, the sinful nature. But it's this selfishness that, that twists everything, that makes it impossible for us to live in obedience and fellowship with God. So salvation is far more than just a ticket to heaven. To save us from sin is to grant us new life, to give us a new heart, to reconcile us to God, to make possible a a whole new type of life, a whole new existence with God. You know, we often have a very limited idea of salvation. We think of it in terms of a get-out-of-jail-free card. Salvation means we don't face punishment for what we've done. And this is certainly true, and I'm very glad of that, that we are forgiven for our sins. It's a glorious thing. But salvation is much more than this. Scripture tells us because of our sins, we are separated from God, that there is enmity between God and man. Jesus came to deliver us from that innate selfishness, that self-centered heart, uh, that, that nature that's bent toward what we want and what we desire, that twists everything. Jesus came to free us from that, to give us new life, a new heart, to reconcile us to God, and to make it possible then for us to live in love and communion with God. And so this is salvation, to, ta- to save us from this sin and selfishness that ruins us, that excludes us, from God's presence, that lets us be in full communion and fellowship with God. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Christ came as the ultimate expression of God's love to save us from sin by enabling us to fully love God in return. And then we can be restored to to full communion and intimacy with God. It's this love of God, this love revealed to us through Christ, that makes it possible for us to love God in return. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. So, in the Incarnation, God is revealing this perfect love towards us. And when He does, when we are able to grasp this love, when we see it expressed in Jesus Christ, God's love transforms us so that we are able to love in return, that we are able to love God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. Uh, I like the way that uh, Abelard expresses this. He he was a church theologian during uh, the Middle Ages, and he writes, Christ died, neither because a ransom had to be paid to the devil, nor because the blood of an innocent victim was needed to appease the wrath of God, but that a supreme exhibition of love might kindle a corresponding love in men's hearts and inspire them with the true freedom of sonship of God. So Abelard is pointing out, Christ came to show us God's love. And when we, when we see that love, 
it awakens in us a love for God so that the salvation makes it possible for us, us to love God. Now, there are two important things we need to keep in mind when we consider this salvation. First, uh, God did not come. The incarnation did not happen for God's benefit. God did not become human uh, to help himself. You know, sometimes we, we kind of express it like that, that God needed to know what it was like to be a man. And so God became a man so that he would be able to experience that. But the Bible tells us God is fully self-sufficient. God is all in all. God had no need for, for anything to be fixed on his part. God became man for our benefit so that we could know beyond a shadow of a doubt there were no limits to his love. There was no stopping point to this love. There were no lengths to which he would not go. So God gave up his most precious possession, his one and only son, to allow us to see the full depths of the love that he has for us. Now, we also need to remember, this was God's plan from the beginning. This was not a reworking of the plan, a plan B, so to speak. A lot of times we have the idea that, you know, man sinned and fell, and God had to come up with a backup plan. God had to do something to fix things. But Scripture tells us over and over again, God's plan all along, even before the creation of the world, was that Jesus would come. 1 Peter 1, verse 20, He, meaning Jesus, was chosen before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of times. Ephesians 1, 3, and 4, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And so we can see this was God's plan all along to come uh, in the incarnation for God Himself to become man. When the angel appeared to the shepherds, he told them, he said, This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. Now, a sign is a, a miraculous act. It's something that's done as proof to show that you are telling the truth, to show that you are authentic, the real thing. You remember the story of Moses when God sends him to the Israelites in Egypt. He is given signs to show them, to prove that he is actually sent by God. For example, he is able to throw his rod down and his rod will become a snake. So we can see what the idea of a sign is to be. Jesus himself provided signs that he was the Messiah. Remember when he turned the water into wine. This was the first sign, the sign that Jesus was the one whom he claimed to be. And so when we read this and we are told, you know, this will be the sign, this will be the proof that you need. We look at it and we think, well, what kind of sign is this? You know, it doesn't sound too impressive. It's a baby, but a completely normal human baby that we can see. Maybe, you know, it's, it's kind of strange circumstances. You don't normally see a baby lying in a feeding trough. But, you know, how exactly is this a sign? A baby wrapped in cloths, lying on a bed of hay. 
But I think sometimes we miss the point when we focus on how the baby was dressed and where the baby was laying. A, a large part of the sign is the baby itself. I think the sign the angel is referring to is Jesus, this baby, God in human form. The baby is the sign. Jesus incarnated. Jesus come as a baby. Uh, this is the ultimate revelation of God. God is revealing himself to man, and what he reveals is the ultimate expression of his love. God sends his one and only son, his most precious possession, part of himself to become man. Now, it's interesting when we look at the story of Jesus' birth, we find this in Matthew and we find it in Luke. We don't find stories of the birth of Jesus in either Mark or the Gospel of John. Mark actually begins with Jesus' adulthood. But in Mark chapter 6, we're given some indication of, of Jesus' childhood. When Jesus returns to Nazareth as an adult, he goes into the synagogue and he begins to teach. And what we see from the reaction of the crowd it tells us what Jesus' childhood would have, must have been like. The, the people there were astonished, and they asked themselves, how did Jesus get this wisdom, this ability? We know this Jesus. They said, you know, isn't this the carpenter's son, the son of Joseph and Mary, the brother of James and Judas and Simon? Don't we know his sisters? So they looked at him and they thought, you know, who is this? Isn't this the one that we know? You can see from this reaction that the childhood of Jesus must have been fairly ordinary. And so what we can see really is something that, that should amaze us. These were people who looked at the Messiah, the incarnation of God himself. And instead of beholding God's glory full of grace and truth, they can only see how ordinary Jesus is. In their case, familiarity bred contempt. Stephen Whitmer writes, Perhaps we're familiar with Jesus too. We never ran with him through the dusty streets of Nazareth, taught him in Sunday school, or paid him to repair a broken chair. But we grew up knowing him. We cut our teeth on veggie tails. We played with the nativity set every year. We know the words to all the main Christmas songs. J.C. Ryle once wrote, Familiarity with sacred things has an awful tendency to make men despise them. And this is true. You know, uh, Whitmer goes on to write, It's possible to become so familiar with Jesus that we know him as a Sunday school answer rather than as a mind-blowingly great, heart-meltingly beautiful Lord. It's one that we owe everything to, who gives us lasting joy, who deserves all of our worship. Familiarity with Jesus may lead us to believe that we have Him figured out. Simply put, perhaps we're a little bored with Him. You know, every year we go through the Christmas story, and we see it in a lot of, a lot of different ways. We see the plays, we hear the scripture read. And if we're not careful, it becomes just the same old Christmas story that we hear every year. 
But I hope this year that you'll take the time to listen to the Christmas story with, with a new ear and a new heart, to recognize the true uniqueness uh, of what this Christ meant, of the incarnation and what it revealed to us about God himself. God himself became a man, and through that, we see the full extent of God's love. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day that you've given us. We thank you for this time of year when we pause to to celebrate the Christmas story, when we celebrate the incarnation of God becoming man, dwelling among us, full of grace and truth. We ask, Lord, that you would bless this to our hearts, and if we do not know your salvation, that you would help us to come to experience that full salvation in this coming year in your name. Amen.